Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to 1 John. Uh, 1 John is all the way at the end. If you go to the book of Revelations and just keep flipping back just a few more pages, you will eventually hit 1 John. You'll see 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. We'll be in the book of 1 John, continue our series, What Love Got to Do With It. And we'll be in chapter 2 in verse 28, starting verse 28. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. Uh, so while you're flipping there, one thing that many people don't know about me is that I really don't cry in movies. Really, the only movies that you will ever see me cry to is a movie where a dog will die. Movies like Old Yeller, Where the Red Fern Grows, Marley and Me, mm. They get me every time. They do. There's one chick flick, though. Out of all the chick flicks, there's one that I try to avoid like the plague. I haven't even watched it with Mandy, my wife, because I know that she will see a side of boohooing that shouldn't even be allowed. You're probably like, what movie is this, Chapin? Tell me. It's a walk to remember. A walk to remember. That gets me, it really pulls on my heartstring, I tell you. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I'm going to have a couple spoilers. I'm sorry, but you should still watch it. A Walk to Remember is a movie about this no-good, punk, rebellious kid named Landon. Okay, And he, he pulled this prank at school, and he was actually facing with expulsion. Well, the, the school said, well, Landon, if you join the school's play then you won't be expelled. So obviously Landon took that deal and, and went to join the school play. And it was there at the play that he will meet someone. He will meet the shy and quiet Jamie. They didn't really know each other in school. They just knew of each other. They were part of different friend groups. Well, Landon was having trouble remembering his lines. So he, he approached Jamie and was like, hey, can you help me learn my lines for the play? So this next line in the movie, when he asks that question, really sets up the entire movie. Jamie told Landon, sure, I will help you remember your lines for the play, but you have to promise me something. And this is the promise. This is what she said. If you promise to not fall in love with me. I heard that. And I'm like, I don't know when I'm crying, but I'm crying at some point. Like that line is foreshadowing something and I'm not looking forward to it. But Landon didn't see that foreshadow. He just laughed and chuckled and said, you, the shy girl who wears old-fashioned clothes and me, the popular kid, never happened. Fast forward to the play. A lot unfolds to get to this point, but they're at the play. There she is, Jamie, on stage just astounds everyone with her beautiful outfit, her angelic voice filling the auditorium. And it was at that moment, at that play, a impromptu kiss came from Landon. A kiss that was not in the script. And it was that kiss that Landon began to make the promise he told to Jamie to not fall in love with her. Landon learned that Jamie had a wish list. This wish list was filled of many different fun things. And 
because Landon is now developing this deep love for Jamie, his goal was to mark off all the wishes he could. And what we see is that wish after wish after wish that Landon was able to mark off Jamie's list, he become more and more and more in love with her. Well, Landon eventually learns that the only reason why Jamie had a wish to begin with was because she had cancer. She was not fighting anymore. She was done with life. Not done with life, but she was just done with cancer. So immediately Landon felt broken. He was upset. He was hurt. But that didn't stop him. He wanted to continue to fulfill wish after wish after wish on Jamie's list. So the movie ends. This is where the boohooing begins. Where Jamie and Landon gets married. And the wish that topped the list was to be married in the same chapel that her mother was married in. What we saw in that movie, a walk to remember, was a no-good punk who thought he knew it all transform. He changed into this loving, caring, compassionate person who stopped thinking of himself and began to think of others. What we saw in this movie was Landon's love for Jamie and Jamie's love for Landon began to change the very essence of who Landon was. So I know that's a movie, it's a chick flick, But there's something about this movie that has a gospel truth in it that will help us this morning. Here it is. This morning, I'm wondering how many of us has experienced the love of Jesus in such a way that it has changed the very nature of who we are. Where we can look at our old selves and literally ask the question and say with confidence, I have no idea who that old person used to be, right? So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Specifically, how does loving God's ways change the very nature of who we are? So this will be our main point this morning. Christ destroyed the works of Satan on the cross. Why did Christ destroy the works of Satan? So that we can be called children of God. Christ destroyed the works of Satan on the cross so that we can be called children of God. So if you have your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 28, and if you are physically able to, I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning. And we stand when we read God's word out of honor and reverence, for this word is truth and full of authority. So will you stand with me? And we're going to read to chapter 3, verse 10. This is the word of the Lord. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Chapter 3. 
See what kind of the love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now and what will be has yet not appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. In verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one does not love his brother. Church, this is the word of the Lord, and all of God's people say, praise be to God. You may be seated. So in our series, we've been addressing one major theme. That theme has been love. Not just any kind of love, but God's love. This kind of love that is immeasurable, it's unfathomable, and some even say scandalous. And this is why we're in 1 John, to know what God truly means about love and what he says about love. See, what what happens is culture will tell us one thing about love, right? We've kind of touched on this some. Culture will tell us that love comes from your your inner being. It comes from your own identity that you make it out to be. It comes from your own heart's happiness. Like what makes you feel good is your love. And what we know makes you feel good, it fleets every day, right? But what is love that, that, that is rooted because this fleeting love that culture talks about, what, what it is, it's more like a facade. It's a, it's a mirage. It doesn't even exist where we think that culture is showing us life, but it actually is bringing us to death. What we've seen so far in our series is that God's love, God loves and gives us joy. It gives us peace. God's love gives us hope. God's love is what enables us to love each other and to love each other well. So this morning, what we're going to look at specifically, how does love God change the very life life we live? So in our passage, we're going to really see two ways of living. We're going to see the way of, of lawless living, And then we're going to see the way of righteous living. And we'll unpack these two as we go on this morning. So let's go ahead and dive into our first point this morning. Satan and the lawless heart. Satan and the lawless heart. 
So when I say lawless, I'm saying this. By nature, we live disobedient to God. Like, by nature, we don't want to obey God. And, and Paul really helps clarify this in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 2, 3, Paul says that by nature, we are children of wrath, right? That's by nature, we are lawless people. I didn't really understand this as well until actually this week. I knew the idea that we were born children of wrath, but tangibly, I didn't know what that meant. Uh, so I had the opportunity to watch a one-year-old this week. And I absolutely love this one-year-old. Uh, it, I watched the one-year-old by myself, believe it or not. I did it. And so I was over there at my friend's house just for a few hours watching him. And I'm sitting on the couch. I'm reading a book, doing some stuff on my computer, just watching him. He's playing with blocks and books and cars. Like He, he actually did a really good job entertaining himself, which really surprised me. I don't know if all one-year-olds do that, but like, I'm like, if this is a one-year-old, like, this is so easy. Like, I know everything. Until he shot up and he was like wobbling to the couch. And on the couch, there was this cat. And I'm just kind of watching him on the corner of my eye. Like, what's he doing with this cat? He raises his hand up like he's about to hit this cat. And in my mind, I'm like, man, Mason, don't hit this cat. Cats don't like people. They'll hit you back, right? So I was like, soft, easy. You know, so he slowly puts his hand on the cat and starts petting him. And then he shot his eyes at me, raised his hand up, and then smacked the cat and ran. Like, he knew what he just did. I learned a valuable lesson in that moment. And actually, I was writing this part of the sermon right then. You don't have to teach a kid to be bad. Kids just know how to be bad. We have to teach our kids to be good. <laughs> And to do good. I don't have kids, but I'm going to store that one in. That one's in the bank. The kids are just naturally bad. (laughs) But that just goes along to show that by nature we are lawless people. Even to the point we know what's good, but yet we still choose bad. Now let's get a little bit heavier. In verse 4 and in verse 8, John is going to show us what does this lawless living mean. He's going to use this phrase twice in between these two verses. And the phrase is this. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning. So let's go ahead and just look. What, does, what, what are we getting at? Verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So, so essentially, another way we could say it, instead of point one, Satan and the lawless heart, we could say Satan and the sinful heart. There's this one way of living that is just sinful living. But th- this is where it gets heavy, all right? In verse eight, John then ties your identity to those who live lawlessly, to those who live, live sinfully. Look at your identity, verse eight. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. John is essentially saying that the one who lives the way of sin, the one who lives in the way of Satan, is a child 
of Satan. That is your identity as a lawless, disobedient person towards God. But here's this tension. We can't, we can't miss this tension. So, so today we woke up. We all woke up. We're here. And we've sinned. We, we've sinned by the time we've gotten here. We could have neglected our wife. We could have neglected our family. We could have went on social media and coveted and became jealous. We could have had impure thoughts. We could have actually partaken in the impure act. There's a myriad of reasons why we could have sinned today. So, so here's the tension that we can't miss. Just because I'm sinned, does that mean I am lawless? Does my sin make me a child of Satan? Because what John is telling us, every time we choose sin, we're choosing the path of Satan and not the path of God. But it seems that when John is using this word practice, practice of sin, like what, what does he mean here? It seems as if he is dressing, addressing a deeper root issue. I think this could be helpful. Simply, instead of saying practice of sin, let's look at it this way. Are you indulging yourself with sin? And John is giving this clear warning to those who choose to indulge themselves with sin because they are choosing lawlessness. They are choosing the path of Satan. So simply put, the practice of sin is lawless living. The practice of sinning is the evidence that one is not born of God. So how do we know if we are practicing sin? Right now, your mind and your heart's pinging. Thinking all those sins, the sins that you have committed, the sins I have committed. How do we know that we're not practicing this sin and that we're not living this life of Satan? I think one is the community of God coming together and, and help calling out sin in your life. And how do you respond to that? But I want to focus in more on your own heart and you examining your own heart. Here's a few questions that, that were extremely convicting for me. Have you slipped into a comfortable, complacent mindset over your sin? If so, you may be practicing sinning. Have sin begun to taste better or feel better in your life? If so, you may be practicing sin. Have you begun to excuse sinful patterns in your life? Here's one. Has the conviction of the Holy Spirit seemed to disappear in your life? And the one that was most convicting for me, why do I continue to do the same sin over and over and over? John isn't pulling any punches, church. He's saying the one who chooses sin, chooses to indulge his sin, is choosing Satan. Well, let's see, what, what's the evidence? What, what is the person who doesn't practice sin? Look, look at verses 9 and 10. It says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. 
By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. So, so this is the evidence. The evidence is this, that for those who are not the ones who are practicing sin, it's the Holy Spirit, right? That, that's the seed that abides within you. So here it is. Does the Holy Spirit, is the Holy Spirit in you to awaken you to the dangerous conditions of your sin? Are you constantly feeling the pressure and the conviction of every time you're choosing the path of Satan instead of the path of God? And if you're not, you have to ask the question, why? Why am I not feeling convicted? Why do I not have a distaste of sin? Why am I not fighting against the indulgencies of my sin? If we're honest, this passage and these verses can easily make us sink down and crawl into our skin. We feel the weight of our sin. (laughs) I think it's good to feel the weight of our sin to the point where we realize the treacherous acts that we continually display towards God. So here's the question. Is there hope? Is there hope for the one who indulges themselves with sin? Is there hope for the one that continues to practice the life of sin, continually choose the life and path of Satan? Is there hope or only despair? Good news, church, there's hope. Let's look at point two. Christ and the pure heart. Christ and the pure heart. So just right from the start, let's get the hope in the open so that we can all breathe in. Verse 3. And everyone, so I'm just that, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Verse 3. I mean, so, so let's pause for a second. We really need to define what does this word pure means. There's a movement going on, the cultural purity movement, that, that your purity is your sexuality and your new identity. Like, like, we're not talking about this purity. We're talking about gospel purity. The one who hopes in him, which, which is Christ, is revealing a new purity. Well, technically it's an old purity. It's the gospel purity. It's not this new cultural purity that, that's surrounding us right now. That's on TV and, and radio and Facebook and Instagram. Like, we're talking about gospel purity. Cultural purity is lawless living. And gospel purity is righteous living. So, so, so what is this hope? What is this purity that John is talking about? Because it seems that he's connecting something. He's connecting our hope in Christ is leading us to a pure life. So let's, let's, let's unravel this some. Let's back up and, and see how does hope and pure even connect? How does these two ideas connect to each other? Well, Paul again helps us in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. It's the book in the Bible or the chapter in the Bible that's known of the chapter of love. And in verse 13, Paul says this. There's three things. Three things he mentions here. So now faith, hope, and love abide in these three. But the greatest of these is love. 
Right, so, so how does these play in us becoming pure in Christ? So let's follow this. If Paul said that the greatest of these is love, that means our love for Christ pushes us to have faith in Christ. So do you love Christ? And does your love to Christ send you to have faith in him? Faith is where you are putting all your chips into the Christ basket. You're putting everything into him. You are trusting Christ for your life now and for the eternity to come. And then Paul then talks about hope. So our faith then leads to hope. Our love of Christ and our faith for Christ is the foundation for our hope. Hope is built on that. And hope is the longing and the anticipation for something better to come. So at the foundation of us and our hope that will make us pure, as John's talking about here, at the foundation of it is our love and faith in Christ. We can't miss that. So what is this thing that is making us pure? What what are we hoping for? What are we longing for? Look at verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So here it is, right here. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we, will sh- we shall see him as he is. So let's boil all of this down. Let's, let's boil all this idea of hope and purity down. Christ makes us pure because, this is why, according to verse 2, Christ makes us pure because we are wholly bound up into the future with him. That means our eyes are set onto something in the future that yet has not come. But that means day after day after day, we are living in light of that future. We are living in light of the return of our Savior. We are living in light of Christ. So just as how a bride must get ready for her groom on the wedding day, we as God's people, we as the church must get ready for him, his bride, when he comes to us. So how do we get ready? That means daily living a life according to him. A life built on love, faith, and So this means that you can't put your hope in Christ and claim a pure life and still live like everyone else. To claim that I have purity in Christ but yet still handle money like the rest of the world and still handle success like the rest of the world and still handle sex and lust like the rest of the world. Like it won't make sense. Because the world says you need more money, but what Christ teaches is that you're giving more. (laughs) The world says you serve for your own gain, but Christ is teaching, no, you serve because I serve you. There's a different way of living with Christ. And that way of living is what makes us pure. We are living in light of Christ. So if you're struggling with the sin, if you, if, and you know your heart, you know the wrestles and the temptations of your own heart, the question is, and that, that Jesus like, wants you to answer is, do you want to be pure? Are you willing to give up the comfort, the power, the control that, that sin offers you so that you can be more pure in Christ? 
So how do we fight for gospel purity? Two things in our passage. One, we must hate our sin. Hate our sin. H.B. Charles tells this story. There's this little boy, and he's running around the house, playing around. And he puts his hand in a vase. And this vase is a family heirloom. It's priceless. And this boy was like, wait, my hand's not coming out of this vase. The boy starts screaming for his dad to say, Daddy, my hand's stuck in the valuable vase. Come help. So the dad runs over there, and and they're trying to pull the vase off the boy's hand. They're just pulling it. And then the dad is like, well, I guess we have to break it. Right? They're not going to allow his son to live with the vase on his arm. So before they break the vase, the dad tells his son, Son, I just one more time, we're going to pull your pull as hard as we can, but just make sure you, you reach your hand out, you tuck your thumb in under your hand, and, and just pull with me. And the boy looked at the dad and said, Dad, I can't do that. I can't open my hand. The dad was puzzled and said, Why, son? And the boy says this, If I do, I'll drop my pennies. Church, how many many of us are willing to destroy our eternity for just some pennies? Because we want to hold on to some sins. But yet we're completely destroying. We're indulging in sin by just holding on to pennies. When there's something so much greater for us. To kind of continue this thought going like I get it letting go of pennies may be hard (laughs) I can't do it it feels good It, 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 it helps me so when we get to the point like we must hate our sin we must get to the point to realize that we can't fight our sin we have to have someone to fight it for us. And that's where we get to one of the most important verses in this passage. And one of my favorites in verse 8, it says this. The reason the Son of God appeared, why did Jesus come? Was to destroy the works of the devil. That means, church, you don't have to fight your sin anymore because Christ has already defeated it all. He has already destroyed it all. So that's why we can say, oh, death. Where is your sting or sin? Where is your victory? It's because Christ destroyed sin when he died on the cross. And when we get to the pits of our hearts and recognize that it was your pride and my pride and my comforts and your comforts who killed the Christ should cause a distaste for sin. And one more way that we can fight for gospel purity, and it flows quite well with hating your sin, and that is putting to death your sin. Putting to death sin sounds as easy as going to the moon and back. It seems almost impossible, but it's not. The way that we put to death sin is this, it's through the empowerment of the Spirit, It is fixing our eyes on Jesus. The impossible of seeing sin die is possible. A great encouragement verse for us, church, Hebrews 12, 2, says this, looking to Jesus, 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The reason why we can't fight our sin is because we can't, but there is one who has fought the sin for us, the one who founded and perfected our faith. That is Jesus Christ. So you want to see sin put to death? It's not about what you can do, but it's a what about it's what he has already done. The one who already lived the perfect, pure gospel life. So we've seen John wrestle these two tensions, right? That there's either the tension of lawless living or the tensious the tension of purity living, gospel purity living. And what we see is that we can't hold these for the rest of our lives. We're going to have to let go of one. And John's now going to show us the joy of letting go lawless living and holding on to purity and gospel purity. Let's look at our final point this morning. A new family and a new heart. First John 2.28 says this. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in the shame at his coming. What Satan wants to try to convict us, and what our flesh is trying to convince us, is this, is that our sin should cause us to live in shame. That that shame should keep us to want to live these pure lives. But right here in verse 28, we see that we get to have confidence. We don't have to live in the shame of sin. But yet through Christ, we get to have confidence. So this is exactly parallel with what happens in the garden. Right? Adam and Eve sinned. They realize they're naked, and what do they do? They find fig leaves to cover themselves. They were ashamed of their sin. They were ashamed to be in front of God. What does God do? God comes to them. He sought them out in the garden while they were hiding. He killed an animal so that he could use its fur to clothe them, so that they don't have to feel shame about their nakedness. So they don't have to feel the shame of their sin. This is parallel with us because this is exactly what Jesus did for us. We have all sinned. We've all felt the shame of sin. But yet Christ has sought us out. He died on the cross so that he can put his clothes of righteousness on us. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, but yet he sees his son. He gives us this new heart by calling us righteous through Christ. So not only that, look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Not only are we getting this new heart, but I just love this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. So not only do we have this confidence that Christ's death is sufficient, but yet now we have a new identity. Our identity now with Christ is either son or daughter of God. How amazing is that? 
one of the most intimate relationships, son and daughter and daddy. And he wants to call you son or daughter. We don't have to coward in our shame of sin, but yet we get to breathe. And like verse 3, hope in him. What does all this mean? Christ giving us this new heart, being, being given this new identity in Christ, being part of this new family. Like what does all of this mean for us day to day? So John's going to use one word three times in our passage. Verse 28 of chapter 2, he says this, And now, little children, abide in him. In verse 6 of chapter 3, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And he uses this word in verse 9. He says, God's seed abides. John is doing something. He's connecting. There's something about us abiding in Christ that, that, that is what allows us to live this new life with this new family and this new heart that Christ has given to us on his death on the cross. So how do we do that? How do we have this abiding relationship with Jesus? I want to give us four ways, four ways to challenge. This is not any, this is, there's many other ways, but these are just four for us to just think through right now. And then we'll close this morning. So how do we do this? How do we have this abiding relationship, a part of this, living the ways of God, being changed in the ways of God? Here it is. Number one, first it's faith in Christ. To have an abiding relationship with Christ, you must have faith in him. See, your faith in God is rooted in your activity of God. What I mean by that, if you have no faith in God, you're not wanting to do anything for God. So if you don't want to do anything for God, I would really challenge you to ask the question, do you really have faith in him? Do you have faith that he can move mountains in your prayers? Do you have faith that he could save your friend? Do you have the faith that he can truly forgive your sins? Because the way you answer those questions will determine your activity towards God. How much you want to depend on him, if you're going to go all in or not. And what an abiding relationship with God is doing is it's pushing us to go all in on Jesus, all in on Christ, a complete faith in him. To pursue Christ with eagerness. Our faith in Christ then, secondly, leads to obedience. If you want a deeper abiding relationship with Jesus, to not live lawlessly, but to live with gospel purity, it is obedience. Abiding in God involves our heart to obey God. As we read his word, we are filling our hearts and minds with his promises, with his truths, and we're allowing his word to transform who we are. Just a few Things of obedience just in the book of 1 John. Do you love others? That is chapter 3, verse 10. Are you confessing sin? Chapter 1, verse 8. Are you keeping the commandments? Which Jesus tells us the greatest commandments are loving God and loving the neighbor. Chapter 3, verse 24. There's a lot of areas that we can grow in the Lord. But if you want a deeper abiding relationship, we push in to obeying the God of the universe. Number three. To have a deeper, deeper abiding relationship with God. This is the one I struggle with the most. 
I, I mean, I struggle with all of them, but this one, for some reason, it just, it's hard for me. Rest in Christ's love. Rest in Christ's love. This is what I mean. Are you satisfied wholly in Christ? Is Christ enough for you? Or are you still looking for the affirmation of the world? Are you still looking for your boss to say, hey, you're doing a good job? Are you still looking for that friend saying, yeah, you should do that? Look, I'm not saying getting encouragement or affirmation from other people is a bad thing. We need it. God called us to edify and build each other up. It's important. Hebrews 13. But here's the thing. Are you dependent on others' affirmation? Or is Christ's love enough for you? Number four. This one is very similar to what we already talked about, but I think it's just so important. Are you dying to yourself? To have a deeper abiding relationship, you must be dying to yourself. Are you searing your own wants, your own desires, so that you can have more of God? Think of it this way, that that you have a cup. And this cup is full of sin. And every time you're dying to yourself, every time you're dying to your lust, that cup gets lowered so that more of Christ can be shown in. More of Christ can be added in. So the more we die to ourselves, the more that sin is dying in our lives, the more Christ is being magnified. Right now, there may be a million things going through your mind. Honestly, you might be like, is he almost done? What are we having for lunch? What am I going to do now that football's over? Did I send that email for work? I don't know what's going through your mind right now. Your flesh is fighting you. It's fighting me. This morning, right now. Our flesh wants us to miss these truths of God. The truth that we can have a pure life in Christ. The truth that we can fight our sin through Christ. Our flesh wants us to miss those things because it loves them. It loves sin. So this morning, you're going to be faced. I'm going to be faced when we walk out of here, as we still sit here, as we go home, as we go to work, we're going to be faced with these two tensions. Are you going to hold on to indulging yourself with sin? To continue to practice the ways of Satan? You can. You can let go. No reason to play games. You can let go, and it's a lot easier to let go of one than holding two. My hope is this. My prayer for all of us this morning is that we let go of the tension of lawlessness. Church, God's grace is sufficient for you. God's mercy is new for you every morning. Christ's love is deep and vast for you. You can hold on to this tension of loving Christ because of what he has done for you. 
because of the work that's already been completed. We are being called, church, to live these gospel pure lives, to live in the path of Satan, or to, to live in the path of Christ and not of Satan. So this morning, the question for you is, are you going to follow the path of Christ wholeheartedly going all in? Let us pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. Uh, Father, as we saw in our passage this morning, is that you take sin seriously. You take sin seriously, seriously to the point of, of your son and sending your son to die for us. Father, I pray that, that we, we feel the weight of our depravity, that we feel the weight of our failures to the point where it breaks us and shows us that we need a Savior. Father, I pray that as we enter into a time of reflection that, that we are honest with our hearts, that we're honest with our minds, that we're honest with the reality of which tension we are actually holding on to. And Father, I pray that, that there is nothing on our own power or our own strength that, that, that empowers us or gives us boldness, but yet, Father, it is through the amazing work of your Holy Spirit to come and change us and transform us so that we can be made more like your Son, living the ways of God. We ask all these things in your Son's name. Amen.